0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to a bonus edition of The Takeout. We spoke with former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist on May 1st. We wanted to talk to Frist because he is a renowned heart and lung transplant surgeon, a former Senate Majority Leader, and currently an advisor on COVID 19 matters to the city of Nashville and the state of Tennessee. Frist remains deeply involved in medical technology issues and, in a series of speeches in 2005, warned the United States would face a crippling virus that would emerge from Asia and could, if not control, do deep and lasting damage to the entire country. Pressing it, indeed. We played a small portion of this conversation on my other podcast known as Debriefing the Briefing, which, by the way, we humbly urge you to subscribe to and, if you please, leave a rating and review. I want to welcome in uh, former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, a world-renowned physician. His specialty as a physician was heart transplant surgery also an expert on a lot of other things in the medical world. Uh, Dr. Frist, Senator Frist, great to talk to you.
1: Major, great to be with you today.
0: So I want to get to a speech you gave at the National Press Club in 2005 in a couple of minutes, but I'd like to get your appraisal of where we are as a nation right now, what is working and what's not working.
1: Well, what's working is the resilience of the American people. It's pretty amazing. I have uh, gone through personally anthrax, and I've gone through initially when we were thinking about smallpox, worried about it, and then the HIV, AIDS, and then been through a lot of natural disasters and uh, on the ground uh, with Katrina and then Sri Lanka. So I've been around through those, and I have been amazed compared to all of those resilience of the American people. Uh, They're hunkering down. They believe in each other. They believe they're part of a bigger uh, mission, which they are, and requires that sort of solidarity. So I'm amazed with that. Uh, The United States is in a pretty good position now in terms of the pandemic, it's hit here and we and the UK have probably been hit the hardest. In part, we were slow to respond, that's the negative. It's been belated, our response was probably about two weeks uh, too late. Uh, Our communications is not perfect, it's been confusing in terms of the the White House and the misinformation and the hypotheticals have been confusing to the, the American people. Our scientists A plus, the private sector A plus, um, the scientists the best in the world, working with Chinese scientists, other scientists is very, very positive. So I would give us sort of a, a, a good B plus of where we are today. Uh, but this is going to go on for at least a year and more likely two years.
0: couple of news developments this week. Uh, remdesivir had a clinical trial that uh, Dr. Fauci at the National Institutes of Health said was promising. Do you agree?
1: Well, based on the data, it's been up or down. You know, the week before, people said it wasn't very working. I think Lancet had an article. It's not very promising. So we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, it won't be the cure-all. I do personally place more emphasis on these antiviral agents, and there are others that are out there, other potential treatment as well uh, in the short term, because the vaccine's gonna take so long. So remdesivir is a a good drug. Uh, It has never been used in in people to treat anything before. Uh, It clearly does work in monkey models, and in the human tests that have been done, it looks very promising, so I'm very hopeful.
0: The administration announced something this week called Operation Warp Speed, which is a federally financed, meaning the federal government through taxpayer dollars will backstop as rapid a possible development of a vaccine, not just its development, its manufacture and its distribution. Again, quoting Dr. Fauci, he said it was not overly optimistic to think that could be ready to go by January. Your appraisal.
1: Yeah, way over, way over optimistic. Um, and, and I love Dr. Fauci and I've worked with him for 20 years, 18 years since the HIV days, uh, but that's way too fast. Uh, the vaccine that's, uh, the vaccine itself, the fastest we've ever done a vaccine is 40 months in, in history. Uh, the advantage today is we have these mRNA vaccines, which are a new type of vaccine, that you don't have to give a piece of the vaccine to a person and develop antibodies. You can actually use a, a RNA DNA platform. The details don't really matter, but it does allow you to do the research what we call a bug to drug or or you know, the pathology to the drug at a faster time. The real challenge is going to be in the distribution. So once we figure out the vaccine itself, we have to make about 600 or at least 300 million doses, probably 600 million doses. Also, the world's going to be clamoring for that vaccine. Our manufacturing capacity in this country right now, the most that any factory can make is about 10 million. And we only have three factories here. So we have to depend on global factories to be making the vaccine. Plus, the vaccine is going to have to be perfectly safe. If I'm going to look you in the eye and say, your child's going to get this vaccine, that vaccine has to have 100% safety for for a normal, healthy person. That's going to take a a lot of of, of proof before everybody's going to jump in and get it. So let's say the vaccine was ready or you figured it out in six months. The manufacturer is going to take another six months. The distribution is going to take about a year and a half. So the whole idea of giving the American people hope that they can get a vaccine, I think personally, and I may be wrong, in a few months is just not, not appropriate.
0: So are you comfortable with the pace of reopenings at the state level? Uh, that you're seeing, that you're observing? Do you have any anxiety that this is moving too rapidly?
1: Um, I'm very, first of all, I'm personally involved um, uh, at both the, the city level, a city of about 700,000 people in Nashville, um, and at the state level, working with our governor in Tennessee, which was one of the early uh, southern states to announce they would open up. And right now, during this period of time, we have 30 states that that are opening up. Is it too early? No. The whole pitting of public health safety shutdown versus the economists get back to the job, you know, the governors get it open is really a false choice. What what we have a responsibility to do as, as a country is affordable containment versus unaffordable containment. And we're moving from this global shutdown called global mitigation to a more targeted individual containment. And that's the only way we're going to be able to open up safely without creating death, a lot of death and morbidity. I'm comfortable opening up if and only if we can put a huge priority on testing and have massive testing. Right now, we've had people in Washington say we have plenty of tests, and that's absolutely false. It's absolutely wrong. If we don't know who the enemy is, you could be infected now, I could be infected now, yet you and I can't get a test that tells us whether or not we have the infection and we'll infect other people. So I think we should go ahead and start reopening, but we may have to close back down. We can give it two to three week intervals. If there's any kind of an outbreak, we're gonna have to go to hunker back down, put back on the restrictions. The reason why I'm in favor of beginning opening is that there's a huge economic cost to the shutdown. The economy shut down, Nobody is working, not many people are working now. Stimulus money is coming in, but there's nothing to stimulate. People are going into poverty. They can't afford their drugs, they can't afford food on the table, and therefore that has its own cost, especially with vulnerable populations. And we can come back and talk mm-hmm. about that. It disproportionately impacts vulnerable people.
0: For sure. You were the Senate Majority Leader. You know what it's like to make decisions on behalf of the body to set the schedule and to run that institution, at least as nominally as any Senate Majority Leader can. How do you evaluate Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's decision to bring the Senate back? There is some concern expressed that it may be too early to do that and that there may not be enough tests available within the Capitol complex itself for relevant senators and their staff.
1: Uh, I just, I, I think Senator McConnell was right to get the Senate back, and I say this as a former majority leader, post 9-11 when we were hit, we made a big point, and again, hugely destructive to the American psyche, to human life, 3,000 people dying sort of instantly, but we did not shut down the Senate, we kept the Senate active, and you'll recall that we went to the stairs of the Congress to show the world, to show the American people that we were there. We were with them. We were active. We were looking at the issues. From the safety of the Senate standpoint, I, I don't worry at, at all. There are, en- are enough tests. Social distancing does work. there's one thing we've learned over the last four weeks is that social distancing works. The, the, the voting procedures are just technical things. They can spread out the voting. They can still use the sort of Zoom and podcast and, and, and distant communication. So, no, it's the right thing. The Senate is there. They're working hard. I will have to say, because I've been in touch with a number of them over the last three weeks, because they're a lot of friends, that they've been working very hard. I've talked to Lamar Alexander regularly, and he's putting in 16-hour days and in 15-minute increments. So they're doing the nation's business, but symbolically it's important that they're, they're, they're doing that business.
0: There's some criticism from Democrats that mostly what the Senate majority wants to do is work on the executive calendar, not the legislative issues that loom in the phase four or five, whatever the next piece of legislation is, or on the oversight component of what's already been spent and devoted to the COVID-19 response. How do you evaluate that?
1: Yeah, I'm just not close enough to it. Um, uh, Major, I'm just not there. I, I'm, you know, I, I think they're there to do the nation's business and I'm sure politics and the media coverage of that's gonna color it. But having been there and know the dedication and the commitment of the individuals that, that are there, I, I really do believe they're there to do the nation's business.
0: Did the country waste time on hydroxychloroquine in terms of a conversation in the context of COVID-19?
1: Absolutely. It was a, it was a, a waste of time because it didn't really change the science. Uh, the clinical trials are, are, were underway. It takes clinical trials that are randomized and what we call double-blinded to figure these out. The American people are, are anxious they're worried about getting their virus. They're scared for their children. They're scared for their family. And when we have the president of the United States put a hypothetical that's out there, it doesn't mean don't try it. it doesn't mean don't do the clinical trials, to, to put it out there and stay on it day after day and have other people around them saying, oh, oh, yes, it gives it a priority which is disingenuous and I would say very hurtful to what is needed with communication and that is science-based trust, genuine empathy, all of those is lost when you get out and spend not just a throwaway line on it, but day after day saying, this is your hope. This is what you can hold on to. It sets us way, way back. And then when really important things come out, who can you really trust? It doesn't even mean the drug does not work. It just means don't put it out there as if it is going to be the answer.
0: I can't uh, let that thought go without also mentioning disinfectant and UV light
1: same thing, the same, same thing. You know, if you, if you watch it on TV, uh, you know, it's somebody who doesn't fully understand science and who's throwing hypotheticals. And if it were behind closed doors and you're with your science advisors, it's okay. But when you have, you know, 50 million people watching, uh, some of whom may just catch that little blip and then they turn around and actually try it. I've been on the other end as an emergency room physician to take those toxicology calls of people who take these poisons, um, I, just, I just know it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do.
0: Is it painful for you to see that?
1: Yes, of course it is. Of course it is if it's on television night after night after night. But the good thing about the, the, the whole what's happening with us today, if there can be anything good, it is the understanding of the American people, the resilience of the American people, the understanding that science is important. And there's been sort of in Washington a disrespect on both sides of the aisle to some extent or lack of appreciation for science. The only thing is, that's going to get us out of this is a little bit where you started, and that is science. How good are our science in a cooperative way, in a global way, working together? The virus is cagey. I've been fighting this virus when I was in medicine doing heart transplants. And, and when, from the speech you talked about, I've been fighting viruses a long time. They're going to always move faster than we are. And therefore, ultimately, we're going to have to get the vaccine to end this. We're going to have to get antiviral agents, both to science. I think a a deep appreciation of the importance of science, the support of research and development for science, is being expressed and felt by 300 million Americans today.
0: We started this conversation in reference to a speech you gave in December in 2005 at the National Press Club. I know you are in no way encouraged or pleased that you can have a giant I told you so moment, but that speech did outline a great number of the dire circumstances we've just gone through as a country and as a world in terms of economic shutdown, sickness, rapid death, and an overwhelming and a near crippling of the American medical system in the cities where this virus struck most ferociously. Your thoughts about that speech then and what we've learned now and what maybe didn't happen the way you projected it might in that 2005 speech.
1: Yes, and the the, the purpose of the speech, even bringing it up now, is that we can't let it happen again. As I mentioned, the virus is cagey. These viruses will come back. There are bugs, viruses developing all the time to which our body has no immunity. We've had nine pandemics since the flu, the, the, the Spanish flu that we had in the early part of this. We've already had nine pandemics. There's gonna be another one in 15 years. So it is worth going back and say, why wasn't anything done? Bill Frist, you were majority leader of the United States Senate, the upper body. You gave a speech like that and nothing happened. We're caught flat footed. And we did, in that particular speech, I outlined in detail the six different problems, the fatalities that would see the impact on the economy. And it all happened almost exactly. And it wasn't me predicting it. It was sort of known by the scientific community. So my experience sort of being in the Senate, why would I bring it up? It was a little bit like the HIV AIDS, why we did it when I was there. There were no doctors in the Senate when I came to the Senate, the representative democracy. I'd spent 15 years doing heart transplants in which I was fighting that virus every day so they wouldn't, they wouldn't take down and kill my transplant patients who were immunosuppressed. And then I did the, the anthrax, which happened you know post 9/11, and again, you, you were there at the time. And then I was in, um, involved in SARS in China with a group of senators. At the same time China was saying it wasn't a problem in 2003. And then now the, and then after that in 2003 was PEPPAR was the HIV/AIDS a pandemic that killed 65 million people that America did step up to. And with presidential leadership in a bipartisan, and that's critical, a bipartisan way, we reversed the course of history, working globally, but it took US leadership. That was all pre 2005. And so with that experience and having seen that and seeing the impact of something that we could have, I said, surely we, the United States Senate, Congress, working with the president could do something. So that speech I gave 20 different times across the country, everywhere. Um, and it basically was not, a, it wasn't a prescient speech for today or predictive speech. It was really the state of what the state of what the reality was. So the real message there is you could give that same speech today, what I'm very hopeful for capturing, capturing this teachable moment that five years from now we will have acted to prevent and be able to control that next pandemic.
0: Is there someone who owns the failure to adequately prepare?
1: No, no. And I will say, you know, th- this pandemic is, is a virus against humanity. And so, so it's not the president of the United States that you know took too long to, to react. And it really wasn't Congress itself. And it wasn't, you know, science. It really was all of us as a, as a complicated society and a democracy that, you know, tends to, to respond to the short term, to the, to the whims of the American people. And, and we're not set up really to address these long term interests. So the, the teachable moment here is with this resilience and, and the, the power of the American people and the appreciation of science and the, now the understanding of epidemiology of being together collectively through our representative body both the executive side as well as the the United States Congress, and address the issue. And I outlined it in 2005, and it's the same thing today. We don't need to go through those, but there are like six things that you need to do to be able to not have the great catastrophe that we're seeing hurt, both in the lockdowns as well as in the direct causes of the virus itself.
0: How close do you think we came to tipping over if we hadn't, as a nation, shut things down when we did? Would we have tipped over?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, right now, we know that the social distancing worked, and it did take the epidemiologic models, one from the West Coast, Washington, and one from the Imperial College in London, to really have people understand what exponential growth of a virus is. You know, the word exponential growth, we always use it as hyperbole, but only if you look at it mathematically, where you have a doubling time of every three days, that you realize you literally start with one person and can go to three to four billion people with a true exponential growth. And the three or four billion people, it depends on what the case fatality rate is, and we don't know what that is today. Um, it, but if it's 1% or if it's even a half a percent and you're infecting three billion people, clearly it's catastrophic. And that that likely would have happened if the United States hadn't shut down, and we, it took us a while, we were belated in doing it, but you look at South Korea, you look at Hong Kong, the people that very successfully did it early on, it cut off that exponential growth. It really pushed, flattens the curve, and we all know it doesn't. It prevents the surge. You push the infections out to later, but it's in the surge where you overwhelm the hospitals and the doctors if you see most of the deaths.
0: And New York, it feels like, was almost at that point of tipping over.
1: Yes, and, and New York... Uh, will stand out. You've also had the, the Washington experience and all, but uh, but New York, there, there are a whole lot of reasons, but we were at the tipping point in, in, in New York. And the deaths and in, in the catastrophe, it came very quickly there, in large part because of the flights out of China, and President Trump was right in cutting those flights uh, off. They should have been cut off both China and, and us much earlier. The, the whole Wuhan experience was the fact that 7 million people got out of Wuhan throughout China and then came to Europe and then came here. And so New York hit that tipping point and that surge. We've all learned a lot from New York, just like New York learned a lot from China to prevent that from happening in other cities.
0: I've often told people that two things can be true at the same time in this matter. The president is right to say that travel restrictions for China were significant. It can also be true that after that, other things could have been done that weren't done for about four to six weeks, and some time was lost. Do I have that right?
1: Absolutely. The big one—I mean, I can name them. You can probably named them, but uh, the number one is the testing. Uh, it was—it's very disingenuous to say that we have adequate tests. With testing, if, if, I guess if we—we, we, you have to be symptomatic to to have this virus. But that's the science. This virus, you don't have to be symptomatic. So the only way you're going to know the enemy—the enemy, the virus not to the United States, but to the world, to humanity. The only way you can know it is a scientific test. And to say that when we had a few hundred thousand tests available, that we're going to be okay, or that doesn't need to be where we emphasize is a huge, huge mistake. But again, shutting down the airlines was the absolute right thing to do.
0: Harvard says we need 5 million tests a day. True?
1: Yes. Yeah, we need the, the, the testing is interesting. There are two types of tests, which which you know. One is the PCR test. That's the instant test. You have it, you don't have it. The other is the antibody, the serologic test, which you had it in the past. You either had it in the past month, or you may have had it longer than that in the past, those two tests. Both of those tests are important. If we have we now we're probably up to about a million and a half tests. Um we need five million tests, exactly what you said every day. We, we, need to, we need to keep them going. And the reason is because that's the only way to know where the enemy is. If you don't have that, you have to shut down the whole country because you don't know where the enemy is. If you have it, you can target. So you go from this global mitigation, shut everybody down, which we've done, but can't be sustained. It's not affordable. That in itself causes loss of life and, and, and destruction. So as you begin to open up, you have to have the test. And that's sort of the biggest failure, I think. And it's still a failure because we don't have the test yet. People like Lamar Alexander putting in this shark tank idea that was announced last week uh, by, by the NIH. Again, it shows that we need better tests, faster tests, tests that we can do in the home today. So it's not just more tests, but it's a better quality of test, especially on the serology side, the antibody test. It's sort of a free-for-all out there, and everybody's making these tests. You can put the test out there. The number is one thing, but you have to have good quality of test as well. And so both of those two areas we need to improve. And we, we, we keep saying we're on the way. We're not on the way fast enough because we're opening this week.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit about China. In your 2005 speech, you talked about habitat, the encroachment of people to animals, and the certain transmission between animals and birds to humans, that all came true, not only in COVID-19, but before that. Are wet markets a thing of the past, or should they by international decree or cooperation be a thing of the past?
1: Yes, if you look at, if you look at sort of the nine pandemics uh, since the, since the, 20, the 1918 uh, flu, you will see why that sounds pressure now you're exactly right i said it's going to be coming out of a market in asia possibly in africa but in asia And it's because of this interconnectedness coupled with airlines the fact you can be there in 12 hours and you can be here as well um, it, it, it's called antigenic shift and antigenic drift it's too much really for our conversation but these viruses are changing all the time and even today we don't have a vaccine against Uh, HIV, AIDS, or Ebola. We don't have vaccines that work, so we don't want to overstate the vaccines. But there's kind of shifting all of the time, and that's called, and and what they're doing is self-preservation. The virus says, I'm going to be smart. I don't want to be, you know, leave this earth, leave the world, and therefore I'm going to keep shifting. It's when, or I'm going to keep drifting, that's the antigenic drift. It's when it shifts, and then it jumps from animal to animal to human, it's the problem. Because we are immune to that. I mean, we are naive to that. And then that can cause death and destruction. So, the, when you have this interconnected of avian flu, avian fowl, the birds, the bats, the, the meats, with, with a deeply congested area where there's a constantly exchange of the biomes and then the microbiology, it is inevitable that you're speeding up both the anegetic drift as well as the antigenic shift and you're increasing the probability. So yes, they should be shut down. The challenges, you know, it's a big part of the culture there. And so you can put a law on the books, but is that going to stop something that, that people's livelihood is, it's where they make their money. It's where their families are. It's what their grandparents did. So it's very hard to do.
0: So this conversation is already taking off in the political realm, China, I want to stay out of the politics of it. I just want to talk about your appraisal of what China failed to do and should have done that could have put the world and, as a result, this country in a better place than it found itself.
1: Yeah, it's a a great question, especially when I I said back 2005, the decade before, and then now that still is going to probably come out of these congested human to animal areas uh, in in China. Uh, Problem number one is because of the government there. And this happened when I was in in the SARS episode back in 2003. The government itself that does have a heavy anti-control controls all communications. You have scientists and I'm talking to Chinese scientists right now. I talked to them a month ago. I learned from them they're taking care of patients and that exchange is still going on well, but at the government to government level, if the government clamps down on science there or says, no, you can't communicate. So in Wuhan, where these first cases came out of, there were 7 million people who had left Wuhan before an emergency was declared there. It was, there were 10,000 cases already diagnosed in China before any of the sort of public word or the action started clamping down to keep people from going. And as we said, talked earlier about exponential growth, once people leave, it is all over the world. There's nowhere to contain it. So that's number one. It it is the communication by the government, possibly certain punishment of people who try, you know, you hear that, I don't know that, it's coming in. So that that is number one. The flip, the number two, which is the positive, is this interaction of scientists, which is going on today, of the vaccines and the antiviral research that's going on, much is going on in China. When it comes to make a vaccine, Right now, the big manufacturing plants are not in the United States when we need our vaccine. they're actually in China. Number, number two, which is that I'm very critical of China on, besides this sort of this disingenuousness, is the clamp that they have had on the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization, I disagree with, with the president and, and our executive branch who said, "Let's defund the World Health Organization. <clears throat> The World Health Organization is the only organization in the world today that has the infrastructure on almost all of the continents, has 154 field offices around the world. That's doing much of the surveillance that we in the United States should be doing. It's the only organization that's there, but it's very close to China. And it seems that that connection and that affinity for China, who was disingenuous up front, did get reflected. And therefore, I really condemn that relationship between China and the World Health Organization, which has set back the WHO in the very good job that they should be doing.
0: So when the president says China-centric, he's not all wrong.
1: No, I mean, no, not, not at all. And, and I think if China had been more forthcoming earlier, we could have stopped much of the, the tragedy, not just in the United States, but around the world. And I, I will say in two thousand three because I I, I want to be very critical of of China now for that reason. But it was worse in 2003. I had seven United States senators. I was majority leader of the Senate. We went to China at the height of the SARS outbreak. It was about four months into the SARS outbreak. And at that time, China was still, four months into it, uh, was still denying that it was going to be an issue at all. But there were hundreds and hundreds of people dying at that time around the world. And not until we were there and asking questions, did the mayor of Beijing he resign that day and the minister of health was fired the next day. And so the transparency back then was terrible. Better transparency this time around.
0: But still late.
1: Yeah, still way late. Again, in Wuhan, we had 7 million people leave that had been exposed to the highest concentration of this virus anywhere.
0: I'm going to ask you just a series of questions because I want to work through this. Is there anything scandalous about labs in China doing investigatory vi- virological work on viruses?
1: Uh, no, not scandalous. I will say that the particular lab, this is early and it's going to probably change in the next few days. I will say that the first person who was documented that I know of with uh, COVID-19 uh, was not, didn't have any direct connection to to the the sort of animal human connection and the the markets that we were talking about they still could have gotten in some way number two there is one particular lab there that was doing research on coronavirus in bats and in birds that particular laboratory had had outside visitors uh, visit who had been very critical of the safety standards that were there it is in wuhan I have no idea where all of that's going to go. It probably doesn't change things very much. But it is true that the safety standards in that lab, and where there was a relationship with France at the time, were not what they would have been in the United States of America.
0: Would there be anything scandalous about the United States directly or indirectly funding research of that kind at a lab like that in China?
1: No, I don't think so. I think the importance of having, yeah, I mean, obviously, the answer is yes. If all the hypotheticals that I put in and sort of the heuristic is right, that anytime we're funding a lab, we need to make sure the standards are, are there. I think in this particular case, and I don't know a lot about it, that the standards were there, but the execution on the standards that nobody paid attention to. And that's hard to control when you're actually funding and jointly funding and partnering with, with other scientific organizations around the world. But it does come back to, to your point that safety and security is got to be the bottom line for anything that we're actually funding in, in the future, and it should have been in the past.
0: You've spoken with great specificity about your experience with China, SARS, and now observing this. What do you think the reputational harm to China will be on the other side of this?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I say all of that, and it's exactly what I feel. But I just, you know, two days ago I was on the phone with five Chinese scientists who were sharing information that are life saving here. So you've had this sort of political connection where you have the issues like trade coming on and privacy and intellectual property rights. Beneath that is this rich um, exchange of science and information that that is life-saving. I I think uh, I I don't want to exclude China from the rest of the world. I want to hold them actually accountable. I want to have full transparency there. There are limits to that. But beneath the sort of diplomatic world, you do have this rich science. that has got to be continued. We're in this together. These viruses are against all of humanity. It's not just the United States. Viruses don't need visas, and these pandemics don't know the borders, so we can't cut off relations with places like China.
0: Before I let you go, how dangerous is a potential second wave of COVID-19?
1: It's a great, it's a great question. The, the thing, and this is where the American people have been very patient and the resilience that we started with, there are unknowns today, and I call them known unknowns, that we're learning about every day. And it's really important that, that people understand that, the American people understand that, because as we get the testing and as we get the data, we'll be able to figure this out and accelerate getting back to normalcy or near normalcy. One of those is, um, uh, is there gonna be another surge in the fall? If you look at past pandemics, the answer is, is yes, but we don't know, so it's a known unknown. The things we don't know, which are important, that we're getting data on are the case fatality rate. If you have it or I have it, what is the fatality rate of you or me? Number two, the, how immunogenic is it? If you get it or, or I get it, are we protected in the future from having it again? We don't know that yet. We think there's some, but is it gonna last a month or six months or a year or, or two years? And we, we don't know that yet. If there is a seasonality to it, it's sort of the third known unknown. Is this thing gonna dissipate a little bit over the summer? And then it comes back to the the winter. We just don't know. So the seasonality, we don't know. And then lastly, what are the cardiovascular effects? The virus hits the lung, but it also hits the heart. And we saw last week about blood uh, clotting and young people dying of it. These long-term neurovascular and cardiovascular effects are, are not, we just don't know. So we don't know who has the virus and who doesn't. We don't know what the true infection fatality rate is. We don't know the seasonality. We don't know if there's going to be another surge. We don't know the cardiac effects long-term. But we are learning about them every day, and that's why we need more testing and what's called contact tracing and testing of, of contacts in the future.
0: In the media world, the gravitational pull of podcasting seems irresistible. It's even pulled you in, Dr. Frist. You have a podcast called A Second Opinion. What is that about?
1: You know, a a second opinion started about a year ago, and it came uh, for people such as myself who've been in medicine for 25, 30 years, for people who have been in public policy for 12 years, my experience, and who've been sort of on the innovation cutting edge of heart transplants, heart lung transplants, starting businesses. So this particular podcast takes uh, CEOs, leaders, policymakers, senators, brings them together one at a time, once a week. It talks about this intersection of health with policy, with innovation, to lead to better understanding of things, exactly what we're talking about, something like pandemics today, or how you can start the next company who can invent the next best test and in innovating to figure out how we can do a better test for, for uh, coronavirus. And that's what we do. We do it each week, um, obviously doing a lot on COVID right now. It's called A Second Opinion Podcast, Rethinking American Health.
0: Very good. That's the voice of Dr. Bill Frist, former Senate Majority Leader. As always, sir, it's been a great pleasure.
1: Good. Thank you, Major. Great to be with you.
0: Thank you so very much. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.